ahead and roll tape. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for growth, which will come through the scriptures. Turn to John chapter 3 this morning, John 3, 22 through 36. We will conclude John 3 this morning. If I have to stay here all day, <laughs> we will get out of this chapter if uh we knock this out in 10 minutes, then uh, then I'll just cut you loose for the day. Uh, I don't want to move on into chapter 4. I'm not really prepared. I don't have slides prepared to take you into chapter 4 this morning anyway. But um, I do want to get through the material here on chapter 3 and deal with really this last portion here in verses 31 through 36. And I think if we can get through that today, we'll be doing well. Before we do any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to sanctify our thinking. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, um, many are the plans of a man's heart, but it is your plan that stands, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the flexibility and humility to uh, walk on a day-by-day basis and to watch your plan unfold and to be humble before your plan and your timing and your wisdom, not to be so insistent upon our own timing. Father, we sometimes joke about our uh, progress, whether it's too fast or too slow, um, Father, sometimes I wonder if we're too picky like Goldilocks on the porridge. But, Father, uh, we know that nothing is too fast, nothing is too slow, too hot, too cold, too hard, too soft. But, Father, Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and he is working with perfection to bring about your grace, eternal plan of the ages. And we want to thank you for that. So as we continue in our study on the life of Christ, we thank you for the privilege we have to study line upon line, precept upon precept, to uh, glean the principles that you have for us and to recognize that this message on this day is just right for our very, the needs of our very soul. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So having said that, my vow to uh, finish chapter 3 this morning might be a bit foolish. <laughs> if he wants us to, we will. If, uh, if not, then we won't. But I, I suspect that we will. We are dealing with this co-ministry of Jesus and John the Baptist co-ministry of Jesus Christ with John the Baptist. And this, if all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we wouldn't even know about this. We would just have him baptized at the River Jordan, tempted by the devil, and then he starts grabbing disciples and traipsing all around Galilee. And, and really where the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, spend most of their time in tracking the, the Galilean ministry. But thanks to the Gospel of John, we're given additional information, particularly on the early calling of these disciples, and uh, especially with respect to the events of the first cleansing of the temple, the ministry around Jerusalem and Judea, and this uh, co-ministry with John the Baptist. So we see it here. Verse 22 says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Aenon near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. That verse there also helps clue us into the fact that John recognizes that his audience, his readers, are already familiar with the synoptic gospels they're already familiar with the basic story and the, and and that they might be 
kind of confused at this point if they expect that after the baptism and after the temptation that John gets thrown into prison and Christ goes to Galilee and things kind of roll from there. He's giving them information that they had not previously been aware of, uh, especially in terms of, of this message here. And really what an evangelistic ministry that the baptizer had after he had fulfilled his herald ministry. See, when, point in fact, he should have been out of work. As soon as he baptized Christ, the, the forerunner has done his job. He has announced the king in terms of the kingdom of heaven is at hand and here's your king. But we see, and this text helps us to understand why it is that he didn't retire the next morning. Why it is that he was still functioning 40 days after the baptism of Christ when Christ comes back from his temptation experience and why it is that he still has disciples and why it is that he's still serving. He's serving with this evangelistic uh, approach and we will outline this for you in five parts here from verses 31 through 36 all right now the details on this as we've given this to you first of all the earliest ministry of jesus christ with his disciples was a baptism ministry similar to that of john's and this is before he goes on an itinerant preaching ministry he will start to travel he will start to go village to village he will start to teach in synagogues he will start to uh, perform healing and miracles and other things that we tend to associate with the ministry of jesus christ but before he did any of that he started with his first six disciples anyway he started in judea in proximity with john the baptist or John the Baptizer, as I like to say. I'm fond of, I stole that from Pastor Ralph Braun. He was fond of using the term John the Baptizer. It stresses the participial, the participial action of the, of the verb that he was a baptizer. That was his activity. He was not a Baptist by denomination. Although uh, today's Baptists would like to claim him as such. See, they will joke with you and tell you, almost half-joking, that you know he wasn't John the Methodist or John the Presbyterian. That he was you know John the Baptist. Well... Anyway, I try to be ornery with that and call him John the Baptizer and take it from there. But this was the earliest ministry, and this was the time. This was a time of foundations. This was a time of training. This was a time of the Lord coming to know these men and these men coming to know Him. Very uh, interesting foundational time, and we spent some time on that. Secondly. The co-located ministries of Jesus and John the Baptist prompted debate and comparison of the two. You can't escape comparison if there's any kind of proximity. The only deal is we don't want the comparison or the contrast to spark uh, resentment, to spark dissatisfaction or jealousy or, um, say, uh, discontent, as it were. Which is what starts to happen here when the disciples of John start to express their dissatisfaction with the fact that their numbers were dropping off and Jesus' numbers were increasing. See, proximity will draw comparisons and contrasts. You can't avoid that. But what you can make sure is that your mental attitude in the process is one that still gives glory to Jesus Christ for all things. See, and, and I think this is where we can draw an immediate application in terms of Austin Bible Church, in terms of other ministries and so forth. When I hear good news about another church and what they've got going on, that's for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we don't want to uh, get the sour grapes and the boo-hoos and woe is us and how come, uh, you know, why do they get to do such things and why don't we get to do such things? See, 
particular, we were having discussions on this just this past Sunday in terms of uh, mission agencies and so forth. And you get a couple of mission organizations, and they're in kind of proximity to one another, and they might overlap a little bit with what the other one's doing. Uh, do we have grace to deal with something like that, or are we going to allow comparisons to divide us and to spark uh, mental attitude sin and verbal sin and anything else? Well, hopefully we got maturity and grace working on both sides of the issue, and anyway, we'll see how things turn out. But interaction between local assemblies is quite interesting, and, and we see it here. We're going to see it elsewhere. We're going to see it in the book of Acts as Mr. Dow takes us to the book of Acts. You've got you know, the church at, in uh, Macedonia, which is about three different local churches, Philippi, uh, Thessalonica, Berea, and they were coming down to Corinth, and they were going to get some believers from Corinth, and all four of these local churches are contributing members that were going to go down into Achaia, and they were going to do a, a, a gospel uh, mission there in, in Achaia, see. And that was cooperation between local churches. Doesn't mean that they were forming a denomination or anything, but it means that believers with doctrine were able to cooperate and, and serve the Lord without competition or without hard feelings. And that's what this passage highlights because these guys have hard feelings, which we gave you under point three. The comparative questions led to John's disciples becoming alarmed at John's ministry declining. See, if you are attached to a personality rather than the Lord, then these things will bother you. <laughs> See, the comparative questions led to John's disciples becoming alarmed at John's ministry declining. And it started off innocently enough. It was allegedly just simply a conversation about purification you know, these folks from the Sanhedrin and the, the Pharisees, they come along and they just want to debate and discuss things on purification. But what was really happening was that the conversation became a comparative one in terms of look what they're doing, look what you're doing, look what we're doing, and fostering the resentments that we see uh, so uh, vividly in uh, verse 26, where the disciples come to John and say, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, um, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. See, they think this is a problem, and John's celebrating. He says, wow, hallelujah, praise the Lord. <laughs> Thanks for the good news report. See, but if you're caught up in a personality, as evidently there's some of that here on the part of these guys, uh, then you view, you get caught up, you have a vested um, a need for this personality you're attached to, he has to be lifted up because he's your idol. And if he's diminished in any way, that exposes the the emptiness of your idol, the emptiness of your idolatry, and that becomes a problem. See, so you got to lift up your idol even higher. You got to go and you got to smash the competing idols. Or if in the end your idol totally lets you down, then you got to turn and smash it so you can move on to your next area of idolatry. We see this again and again and again, even in teaching churches, even from solid men that have told you a hundred times, it's not the man, it's the message. And people listen to that and they write it down in their notebooks and they say, amen, it's not the man, it's the message. And then they turn around and get caught up with the man. See, well, John has the right perspective on this. He was not at all alarmed over these circumstances and details. And I find this to be just as ironic to be just as humorous as the uh, story in, in the first chapter of Second Samuel. 
You remember how 1 Samuel ended and how 2 Samuel began? 1 Samuel ends with the death of Saul and the death of Jonathan, his sons, Saul's sons there. Terrible end and a sad end to Saul. Well, chapter 1 of 2 Samuel then begins with this this fool (laughs) who thinks he's going to score some points here with the new king. And he's all excited about it. In fact, he totally makes up this story about, you know, being there and seeing how it happened and, and supposedly, you know, killing Saul. Are you familiar with this? Maybe? All right, one side trip. We will get through chapter 3 today. One side trip. Hold your finger there, John 3. Look back at Second Samuel, chapter 1. First Samuel has 31 chapters. Then you get to Second Samuel. We ought to just go ahead and combine these like they were originally in the Hebrew as one text, and we'll just call this the book of Samuel, chapter 32. But anyway, I can't change the chapter and verse divisions that have stood for centuries. Um, 2 Samuel, now chapter 1, and here comes this guy. And uh, he tells us in verse 2, On the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head, and it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Then David said to him, From where do you come? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, the people have fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead and Saul and Jonathan are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man who told him said, by chance, I happen to be on Mount Goboa and behold. Now, much of this is now fiction because we've already, if you've read chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, you know how it really went down. But this man is embellishing, exaggerating, uh, adding some details in here to make him look good, or he thinks he's going to make himself look good. So by chance, I you know, just happened to be there, right, wrong place at the wrong time. There I was. I happened to be on Mount Goboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I said, here I am. He said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. Then he said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. So in other words, here's, you know, uh, no chance of recovery. He's not going to live. Quality of life, you know. (laughs) Don't let him get captured by the Philistines and tortured and abused. So uh, go ahead and kill him now. See. And, uh, I took the crown which was on his head and bracelet which was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Now, see, he thinks he's doing David a great favor. He thinks that, you know, now you can be king because Saul is dead and there's nothing to stop you. And here's the crown. And by the way, I'm the one that gave you this crown. And, you know, if he was dealing with any other king or a pagan king or somebody, he could expect to be rewarded and he would be rewarded. The, The new tyrant that takes the throne would be very delighted to honor him and reward him and so forth. Well, David uh, has a little bit of an opposite reaction here. He took hold of his clothes and tore them. He goes into mourning and weeping and fasting in verse 12. And then he goes and he deals with this Amalekite in verse 13 and says, how is it you are not afraid to stretch out your hand and destroy the Lord's anointed in verse 14? You know, David had chances to kill Saul, but he never would. Because Saul, was, even though he was in reversion, even though he was under wickedness, he was still a believer. He was still an anointed king. And as the anointed, the Mashiach, the Christ concept, all right, the Messiah King, he, uh, David wasn't going to touch him. He left him in the hands of the Lord. So David called one of the young men and said, go cut him down. He struck him down and he died. See, there's your reward. 
What I'm illustrating, though, and we can return back to John 3, is that sometimes people will come and they will give you news. And they'll think they're giving you great news. But with divine viewpoint, it's not great news. Or they think they're coming to you with some horrible news. And again, with divine viewpoint, it's not horrible news, it's super. And that's what's happening here in John chapter 3. These disciples are coming to John and saying, we've got problems here. And John the Baptist is saying, no, we don't. This is great. This is what has to happen. My ministry has to fade away. His has to take off. This is wonderful. So John answered and said, returning now to John 3, in verse 27, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. Let's put things in perspective here. I am not the Christ. What a statement. And every single one of us needs to make that statement because we need to remind ourselves that we are not the center of God the Father's plan and program of the ages. Jesus Christ is the center of God's plan and program of the ages. We tend to be wrapped up in self because, well, we're finite, selfish creatures. That's our humanity. But with divine viewpoint, we, we can break free from that selfish perspective and recognize that the Father's delight is in Jesus Christ. And any blessings we have are in Him. See, Ephesians 1, 3, for example. That every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been bestowed upon us in Him, that is, in Christ. Apart from Christ, we have no blessings. All right, now, last week we went through the five subpoints of this. True ministry blessings come from God the Father, which he testified to in verse 27. Uh, this is the principle behind grace giving. While we can be relaxed about service, we can be relaxed about our finances, we can be relaxed about the people who come in here, we can be relaxed about the people who walk out of here. See, because it's the Father's good pleasure to give, to take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. John the Baptist understood that his purpose and work assignment was to exalt the one coming after him. Our role is to highlight Christ. We need to spotlight Christ, not promote ourselves. And John the Baptist also understood his eschatological role as the friend of the bridegroom. We probably don't have enough teaching on the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, we're going to get a little bit of that coming up. Uh, we touch on it here with the aspect of the groom and the friend of the groom and the bride. But we're really going to we're going to use the marriage supper of the lamb as kind of a, uh, a devotional conclusion to our study on marriage that we're doing in first Corinthians. After we go through the New Testament development on marriage and we glean the principles there, I thought it would be helpful and fruitful to go ahead and look ahead prophetically and take a look at the marriage supper of the lamb and give us a, uh, an anticipation of what we have in store in glory with our Savior. Finally, John the Baptist recognized the will of God includes both increasing and decreasing, giving and taking away, opening and closing of doors. We have got to latch on to this concept ourselves. Because we want to give the hallelujahs and the praise gods and the wonderful rejoicing prayers when he opens doors or when he gives, see, or when he increases. Why is it that we don't do the same when he decreases or when he takes away or when he closes doors? Because it's still sovereignty at work and it's still grace at work when he decreases, when he takes away, when he closes doors. He's worthy of praise for those activities as well. Which now brings us to today's message in terms of main point five. John the Baptist understood the message that Jesus Christ was delivering. 
Jesus, John the Baptist understood the message that Jesus Christ was delivering. And it was a message of redemption, a message of being born again, a message of placing your faith in the Savior and, and receiving eternal life. Because ultimately speaking, you can announce the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but think about it. Unbelievers aren't allowed into that kingdom. Now, for the moment, separate yourself out from knowing that the cross is coming up and the church age is coming up and the tribulation is coming up and just consider that we are on the verge of entering into the millennium. See, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we understand prophetically what happens as the tribulation ends at Armageddon and as the millennium begins. Unbelievers don't enter the millennium. Only believers enter the millennium. The sheep and goat judgment of Gentiles, the wilderness judgment of Israel. Only believers are going to enter into the millennium. Those unbelievers who manage to survive the seven years of hell on earth, who physically survive to stand as unbelievers before the conquering king, will not enter into the millennium. They will be cast into the fire. So, Understanding that unbelievers can't pass into the millennium then helps us to understand what Jesus is talking about here in John 3, what John the Baptist are talking about here in John 3, when they start to say to those unbelievers that start to approach them, you must be born again. Say, you must be born again. So, let's chart out this message, verses 31 through 36. This follows, this kind of amplifies what verse 30 says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And then in verses 31 through 36, we recognize that coming from John the Baptist now, um, that these words echo, parallel what we've already heard, what Jesus was telling Nicodemus earlier in the chapter. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Verses 31 through 35 parallels, copies, what the message that Christ had with Nicodemus in the first part of this chapter, say from verse uh, 3 down through um, 21 for example. So let's chart this out for us here this morning. Because I think this forms a, a, an outline for evangelism. I think this gives us a framework that will motivate us in giving the gospel. All right, subpoint A. Jesus Christ has a unique perspective for teaching. A unique perspective for teaching. Verse 31, and we're going to relate it back to verse 13. Jesus Christ has a unique perspective for teaching. And even the unbeliever, even the skeptic, the, the, you know, the rational guy that's trying to evaluate everything and supposedly maintain his objectivity so he wants to investigate everything, you know, people will tell you that, well, I, I try to be open-minded. I want to evaluate, you know, Buddhism and Islam and all these other things. See, okay, fine. 
You know, if you're fair about it and legitimate with it, that's great. If you're just kind of using that to blow me off, well, then, okay. <laughs> Lord will deal with that, too. But you want to objectively examine things? All right, objectively examine things because Jesus Christ is unique. Jesus Christ is unique. Buddha didn't come out of heaven. Muhammad didn't descend out of heaven. See, um, Whatever religious leader you want to plug in there is not the only begotten son from God the Father coming down out of the bosom of the Father to explain the way of salvation. Jesus Christ is unique. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth. See, everybody else, every other religious leader in the history of mankind originated from earth. Jesus Christ came from the Father's throne. This is the contrast, similar to what the Lord was telling Nicodemus, if you glance back up to verse 13. Well, in verse 12, if I told you earthly things you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The unique perspective that Jesus Christ had of any prophet that preceded him. He was not only coming forth as a prophet who had a message from heaven, but he actually brought it from heaven, having as John begins, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Having an eternal like-mindedness and love with God the Father. Unique perspective. Secondly, Jesus Christ is a faithful witness to that which he has been entrusted to speak. Jesus Christ is a faithful witness. Now, this is important because not only is his message trustworthy, but our message is trustworthy because all we are expected to do is be a faithful witness to that which we have been commanded to speak. We're not trying to sell a product. We're not trying to talk somebody into anything. We're not trying to promote a religion or a way of life. The Great Commission and the evangelism responsibility of believers is simply to be faithful, a faithful witness to communicate a message that you have been commanded to speak. It's as simple as that. You report that which you have seen, that which you know. And any believer can do this. Somebody that was just saved this morning. If you, if you just accepted Christ this morning at 6 a.m., nothing is to stop you at 6.30 from reporting on that which you have seen. See, how much doctrine do you have? Not a thimbleful. But you know that you were saved by grace through faith. You know that you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You know that your sins are forgiven. And you're reporting that which you have experienced. You're reporting that which you have seen. See. Verse 32. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. We'll deal with that here in a moment. But what he has seen and heard of that he testifies. To be a witness. See, when we think martyr... Martyros, martyreo, martyrion. We think the word martyr, we think somebody that dies. Now, it could come to that. That's kind of the ultimate. You know, the last work assignment you'll ever have if the Father gives you that work assignment on earth. But being a martyr is not being a, you know, a, a murder victim, first of all. Being a martyr means you're being a witness. And you're going to be a witness. And now, ultimately, that witness may lead to your physical death. But the, the term martyr doesn't refer to somebody who physically dies. It refers to somebody who bears witness. And that's what we're all expected to do. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. 
You ever feel like you give the gospel and nobody cares? Okay, well, don't get discouraged. He did the same thing. <laughs> See, talk to people about Jesus and they couldn't care less. Well, now here's Jesus talking to people about Jesus. <laughs> okay, and we do the same thing. We say, well, no one receives his testimony. We, keep, we use, this is, a, this is an idiom, this is a figure of speech where we can use an extreme in exaggeration to communicate the fact that very few actually do. Some do, obviously, because look at the very next verse. He who has received his testimony. So you look at those two verses together, right? Verse 32 says, no one receives his testimony. And verse 33 says, he who received his testimony. So what do you do with those two verses back to back? You recognize that we're dealing with an idiom when we say no one receives his testimony. What we're really saying is very few actually do. Okay. Some will, but not many. By comparison. Here's John trying to talk to his disciples here about comparison. Don't get caught up in who has many and who has few. Okay. When it comes to salvation, broad is the path that leads to destruction. And many there are that go there too. But narrow is the gate. See, that straight and narrow way that leads to eternal life, comparatively speaking, a relatively small percentage of humanity will actually receive Christ as their Savior and become regenerate. The vast majority, the hoi polloi, are going to reject the gospel message and be through that broad way that leads to destruction. That is simply the, the reality of human rebellion. So the idiom here, no one receives his testimony, is, is uh, it's, it's expressive. It, it does show the, the, uh, the exaggeration shows the small numbers. And yet, the very next verse tells us that there are, in fact, some who will receive the testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. So how... Uh, how does this impact our witnessing and our evangelism? I mean, how many, how many times do you need a success in order to keep going? You know, I think sometimes we get too discouraged too quickly. We don't understand. Now I said a moment ago, we don't have a product to sell. We're not trying to sell anybody, but I think we can at least learn from salesmen as far as what they do. You know, does the, the salesman doesn't mind being told no a hundred times if he gets two or three sales in the process, right? Because he's just working on the sales. If he gets two or three sales, great. Four or five sales, great. And I imagine the salesman has to figure out how many no's he can accept between yeses in order to earn a living and put food on the table and so forth. You've got to have a certain number of yeses if you're in sales in order to make a living and, and feed your family and so forth. But does the salesperson get discouraged and quit just because he's told no at some point? Of course not. Every salesman's told no countless times. The issue isn't how many times you're told no. It's, you know, when you find a yes, you make a sale, you make some money. Well, now take it out of the realm of sales, because that's so earthly and financial anyway. Put it in the realm of evangelism. What if you're told no to 10,000 people before you get your first yes? It's kind of extreme, isn't it? But what if? Isn't the value of an eternal soul worth it? To get one yes? You know, you hear stories about missionaries that spend decades in a country and then get their first convert and are able to rejoice and celebrate and say, well, it was worth it. Well, 
we have these concepts here. No one receives his testimony. And, and we have elsewhere, and later on in the Gospels, we're going to get the encouragement when he's trying to tell his disciples, you know, men are going to hate you, but that's because they hated me. So expect it. Expect rejection. And they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. So we have verse 32. We can relate it back to verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. There, the Lord was addressing Nicodemus. He's addressing the, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin in general. But at least two of the Pharisees accepted him because we know Nicodemus did. We know Joseph of Arimathea did. So, you know, the Lord can say, you as a group collectively, by and large, do not accept our testimony, even though there are going to be exceptions. A couple of Pharisees off the Sanhedrin actually will get saved. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea specifically. You start to see these parallels and you realize when you take verse 31 and you tie it back to verse 13, you take verse 32, you tie it back to verse 11, you start to go through these verses here in 31 through 36 and you realize they all tie back to what Jesus was telling Nicodemus and you recognize that John the Baptist, even while he was ministering with his disciples, was also learning Bible class from Jesus Christ, from the things that Jesus was teaching. All right, point C. Jesus Christ bears the seal of God the Father. Jesus Christ bears the, the seal of God the Father. One time we did a thorough doctrinal study on seals. Dealing with the authority that a seal represents. Dealing with security. Dealing with finances. Dealing with... The, the seal was like the, the checkbook of the ancient world. It was like the authority. It was like a signed legal document. The seal was everything. If you had somebody's seal, you could act in their name. You could draw from their bank account. You could, you know, especially a king's seal. If you put the king's seal on something, you could be passing laws. And the king's seal was on it. Okay? Seals, the study on seals in the ancient world is extraordinary. Well, here's a seal that's mentioned in verse 33. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. Now, every single believer who places their faith in Christ could qualify to, to be viewed in that verse as somebody who has the Father's seal, somebody who can validate the, the, the fact of the, of the message. And the moment you place your faith in Christ and are brought into Christ, you're a child of the Father. You've got the Father's stamp of approval. You can testify to that which you know. But... More especially, this verse highlights Jesus Christ himself. He is the one ultimately God sent, God set his seal, God has given him a, a message, God has given him the spirit without measure, God loves the Son, has given all things into his hand, see, whereas we can draw a general application for any born-again believer, specifically we're referencing Jesus Christ here in this context. Jesus Christ bears the seal of God the Father. And you'll notice... A couple of other places where this context is going to come back up in the Gospel of John. Um, in this instance, not previously in chapter 3, but subsequently to this in the Gospel of John. Chapter 6 and verse 27. After he's fed the 5,000, they kept hounding him. They wanted more food. And he's trying to tell them, look, you've missed the point. I'm not here to fill your bellies. You guys need to get saved. 
It says in verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you for on him, the father, God has set his seal. Jesus Christ bears the seal of God, the father. John 3.33 compared to John 6.27 and then again in John chapter 8 and verse 26. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. That's the seal that we bear, the Father's veracity, the Father's truth. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. See, he kept hammering away chapter by chapter by chapter on the Father. And it wasn't until after the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ that some of these Father messages started to sink in to the disciples. But back to chapter 3, verse 33. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. You and I can go forth with a gospel message knowing that it's the truth, knowing that it comes from the Father, knowing that it's not our message and we're not the guarantee. The Father's the guarantee of the gospel message that we send forth. What a confidence. See, what a blessing. The fourth area. Jesus Christ is the Spirit-filled Apostle of God the Father. Jesus Christ is the Spirit-filled Apostle of God the Father. Verse 34. We'll relate it back to verse 17 and we'll compare it with Hebrews 3.1. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And this is an extraordinary message. And John the Baptist is starting to put some things together about what this coming kingdom is all about. That this coming kingdom is going to feature the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind, in the Old Testament, almost nobody had the Holy Spirit. Very rarely did the Holy Spirit come upon somebody. And oftentimes, or most often, when the Holy Spirit came upon somebody, it was only temporary and then the Spirit would leave. You have phrases like, the Spirit of God came upon somebody. Spirit of God came upon Samson. And he used his mighty strength and he whooped up on a bunch of people or he killed a bunch of people. See, but that phrase, the spirit coming upon somebody and the spirit would just leave when the work was done. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think Moses and David are the only examples I can think of off the top of my head. Sam, uh, Samuel, that had the lifelong indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Very rare in the Old Testament. But now here is the Baptist speaking of the Holy Spirit, keeping in mind that he himself had the Holy Spirit. When did he get the Holy Spirit? In the womb. There you go. It was a couple lessons ago. But it was in this Life of Christ series we looked at that. He wasn't even saved yet. Wasn't even a believer yet. Wasn't even breathing oxygen yet. At least not with his lungs outside of the mom's womb. Okay? But he was spirit-filled. In any event, um, this coming kingdom which is at hand is going to feature the Holy Spirit without measure. God's going to pour forth the Spirit on all mankind. All right. And his message here with reference to the Holy Spirit, yes, it applies to all believers in general because we're all ones that God has sent. We're all speaking the words of God. But specifically, it highlights Jesus Christ himself because he is ultimately the one whom God has sent 
He ultimately is the one who's speaking the words of God. And um, and this is what uh, Christ was telling Nicodemus. He glanced back up to verse 17. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's not the one I wanted. I wanted verse 7, I think. Let me see. What did I want? We have messages of the Spirit. Here we go. Verse 5 mentions the Spirit. Verse 6 mentions the Spirit. Verse 8 mentions the Spirit. And uh, Nicodemus is just trying to figure out, well, what is this thing here about the Holy Spirit? Kind of like the wind. Jesus says you can't see it, but you can feel it. It's blowing. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but you you know when it hits you because it feels like wind. (laughs) Right? So Jesus is ministering. I think this... This verse 17 here is not what I was aiming at. But Jesus had previously in this chapter communicated material that pertained to the Holy Spirit. And now here is John the Baptist later in the chapter speaking of the Holy Spirit. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now when you focus on he whom God has sent... There you're dealing with an apostle. You're dealing with a sent one, an apostle. Now, the word apostle doesn't occur in this text, but it does occur in Hebrews 3.1. Jesus Christ sends out his disciples, and when he sends them out, what do they become? Apostles. They're no longer simply students as disciples, but they are sent ones. They are, therefore, apostles. And so in that transition, when he tells them in John 17, as the Father has sent me, so also I send you, tells us that if they were apostles so too was he an apostle and hebrews 3 1 makes that crystal clear hebrews 3 1 where we hold fast our confession therefore holy brethren partakers of a heavenly calling consider jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession so this helps us in terms of our ministry we're sent ones We're here to give a gospel message. We're here to communicate that which we have seen, that which we have heard. The Father has set his seal on it that is faithful and true. Jesus Christ is our pattern, our prototype, the example. He has gone forth in the power of the Holy Spirit, just like we're expected to go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. What what an encouragement for evangelism, knowing that if they reject us, well, they've rejected him, not us. And they rejected him before they rejected us. Finally, Or not finally, there's a couple more points here. Point E. God the Father loves Jesus Christ and has entrusted Him with all things. God the Father loves Jesus Christ and has entrusted Him with all things. Again, I don't find this a coincidence. John the Baptist is talking about the Father's love. Well, earlier in the chapter, what was Jesus Christ talking about? The Father's love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We have all of these concepts that the Baptist is is hitting his disciples with that tie right into what Jesus was just giving Nicodemus earlier in the chapter. And the Father's love is yet another example of that. The Father loves the Son has given all things into his hand. When the Son was talking about love, he was referencing the love of the world there in verse 16 for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son but the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand we need to orient ourselves to the father's love 
which is for the son. That's our greatest motivation in terms of witnessing. Don't we want to supply blessings to the son? Don't we want to give an increase to the bride? Don't we want to magnify the son more? The father does. The more we come to understand love, and we're dealing with this on Sunday mornings and basics. We're dealing with this as a part of God's divine essence. And, of course, the love that he has, he's given to us, and we're expected to have as well. The more we deal with love, the more we recognize what we're dealing with is this relationship with the father. That it is a love relationship with the father, that he not only loves the son, but through the son, he also loves us. See, we don't deserve it, but we're in the son. So he loves us. And this is where in these subsequent messages, I think we start to see how we can function in our priesthood. Chapter 5 and chapter 17. In chapter 5, verses 20 through 23. Now, in chapter 5, Jesus does this horrible thing, just so scandalous in the sight of the Pharisees. <laughs> He heals this, this lame guy on the Sabbath. You know, tragic. <laughs> tragic that he would break the Sabbath that way by making this guy well, telling him to go carry his pallet and all that. You know, pallet carrying is, violates the Pharisees' rules for Sabbath behavior. Okay. <laughs> Law doesn't say anything about taking your pallet home. It just says, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But the Pharisees, as they've codified everything and they've used law to control people's lives, um, in, their, in their book, carrying this pallet home is violating the Sabbath. So he's done these terrible things. And uh, they want to know, well, who told you to pick up your pallet and walk? And, and uh, the man said, well, I don't know. Now, verse uh, 19. See. Well, verse 16, the, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And he answered them, my father is working. <laughs> so I'm working even until now, even here on the Sabbath. My father's at work. I'm at work. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I think verse 18 is quite telling in terms of the Lord's claims of deity and his claims of, of being God the Son. And, and the, the Pharisees heard it loud and clear. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Now, the Father is a worker and he wants us to be workers. And he has, because he loves the Son, he's showing the Son the work that he's doing so the Son can do that work. We should likewise, if we love the Father, want to do the work of the Father. Notice verse 20. It doesn't say the Father loves the Son so he spoils him rotten and doesn't expect him to do anything. That's what verse 20 says. You know, the Father loves the Son, so, you know, the Son doesn't do any work. The Father does all the work. He just, you know pours all these things on the sun, the sun just kind of kicks back and doesn't do anything, but gets spoiled rotten. No. The father loves the son, so he teaches him how to work. Shows him all things that he himself is doing. The father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. Some people say, well, he was talking about church age there. He's, the church is a mystery. He's talking about kingdom. He's talking about millennium. He's talking about some great things that are going to be unveiled before the whole world in the millennial kingdom. 
Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Millennial Kingdom is going to start with that great resurrection called the first resurrection when the Old Testament saints are resurrected to enter into glory in the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. Well, we have love and we have trust. We have work assignment. And it applies not just to Jesus Christ, but because of Jesus Christ, it applies to us as well. And for this, we turn over to chapter 17. And I find it interesting because just as the Father loved the Son, so also He loves us. And most believers don't learn what this is all about. Most believers, in fact, you take your average believer and they're not under teaching at all, they don't have a clue that any of this is even there. See, their basic approach to, to, uh, to Trinity is, is no more doctrinally advanced than Jesus loves me. Not trying to mock that or ridicule that or deny that. It is a truth. Jesus loves us. Died on the cross, gave himself for us so we could be saved. But can we grow beyond Jesus loves me and get some growth? Can we understand what Jesus wants us to do in terms of having a love relationship with the Father? See, he's the firstborn of many brethren. He wants us to come alongside his brothers and sisters and have the same love for the Father that he has for the Father because we're his brethren. He's not, we're not his children. He's not taking us to the Father as a grandfather. He's our brother taking us to the Father as our Father so that we can have the same love relationship with God the Father that he has with God the Father. He says, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Well, what's all that about? Most believers don't care. They don't want to go to the Father. They just want to, you know, stay babes and, and deal with, you know, Jesus loves me and you go to the Father. See, we'll just kind of stay here in the nursery. No, not what Jesus Christ wants. Now, in John 17, verse 23, verse 24, verse 26, um, I want you to see, though, that there's also the aspect of sending that has... Uh, that has that uh, comes into play here. This this is really the Lord's prayer, not the one that's commonly called the Lord's prayer, but He's sending them out into the world, and they need to be sanctified. They need to be in the truth. They're going to come into conflict. This is such a powerful chapter. But now, just simply notice verse twenty-three, uh, verse twenty-two: "The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one." I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So the love that the Father has for the Son is unlike anything else in the universe, and yet that's the same love that he now has directed towards believers in Christ. The love that God the Father has for you today as a church-age believer priest, is the love that he has for his only begotten son, the love that he has for Jesus Christ. In order that the cosmos may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of of the world. This is an eternal love, and we are the objects of the Father's eternal love. Verse 25 O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Here is where we're truly abiding in Christ and abiding 
in the Father's love. God the Father loves Jesus Christ and has entrusted him with all things. Now, the Father loves the Son, showed him how to work. The Father loves us. We need to get to the work. Say, you see the pattern? You see the parallel? Finally, point F. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. But rejection of Jesus Christ leaves the unbeliever in the lost estate of death. It served as the closing point of, of John's message. It was also Jesus Christ's message. Place your faith in Christ for salvation. Reject Christ. You're already, by default, positionally dead on the road to hell. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation, but rejection of Jesus Christ leaves the unbeliever in the lost estate of death. And it's interesting the way that it contrasts belief with disobedience in verse 36. Because it is the will of God for us to believe. If we therefore do not believe, we are disobeying the will of God who wants us to believe. Verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son, that is, who does not believe, is therefore disobeying, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Present active indicative, it already happens. He who believes has, already has, eternal life. And this is, this is a present Possession. This is another aspect of eternal security because it is a present possession. See, I got saved in 1973. September of 1973. Don't know the exact date, but my mother and I can at least remember the month. My mother's the one that led me to Christ. All right. September of 1973. Well, from that point forward, I have already been in possession of eternal life. Eternal life is not something future. See, I don't expect that, that I, it's something I've been promised and I'll have it when I die. It's something that I've been promised because I have it right now. I have eternal life. Notice, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. So that moment you placed your faith in Christ, this possession has been bestowed. You are in possession of eternal life. So how do you lose that? It's eternal how long is that you can't live long enough to expire it see because it's eternal you can't lose it it's eternal not a trick question or anything when you ask somebody well how long is eternal life okay you know it's forever so does that mean tomorrow i can no longer have it no because tomorrow is still included in forever i haven't gotten to forever yet it's still eternal, so tomorrow I can't lose it. The next day I can't lose it. If I live to be 99 and a half, I can't lose it because it's eternal. And I have it right here, right now. as a gift at the moment of my salvation. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. Now, there it's future because for the unbeliever, eternal life is still a future potential. But if he doesn't obey, if he doesn't believe, he'll never receive life. He'll never receive Zoe. See, we get caught up in the wrong kind of arguments. I think not to minimize what people get involved with when they get involved in the, you know, the pro-life thing that they, they believe in and they, they work towards. But when you're talking about biological life, bios life, that's one realm altogether. But this is Zoe life. 
This is Zoe, eternal life in the presence of God the Father for all eternity. And that's the issue that this text is addressing. Will not see life. They will never receive Zoe, ever. They have bios, bios life. They have physical life. They have soul life. But they'll never have Zoe life. Because that's the gift of Jesus Christ in God the Father. Now, identical to what Christ was saying in verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The default condition is to be judged. That is the default condition of total depravity, the lost estate of of the human race. Didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. You were just born to sinners. You are a sinner. That is your lost estate in Adam. See, I even sometimes like to say, by grace you have been condemned. People kind of raise their eyebrows and say, what are you talking about? Well, God placed Adam in this sphere of death and condemnation. And by virtue of being in Adam, you didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. That's, that's called grace. Say, say, well, you're kind of twisted there on grace. Well, no, just think it through. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You were in Adam when he did it. So you could say he deserved it. <laughs> but Adam did it. Adam became a sinner. Adam's lost estate. The wages of sin is death. The day you eat of it dying, thou shalt surely die. And so now us in Adam are born. And here's this cute little baby. And he's born. And he's cuddly. And you go goo-goo. And he you know, pukes on you and stuff. But you know what? Before he does anything good or bad, he is already in this lost estate. He is condemned to the lake of fire. And if he lives to be 110 and never once accepts Christ, he's already condemned. Not because of anything he's done, but because of this lost estate. See? And so by grace you have been condemned. By virtue of having the entire human race lost, God can make provision for the entire human race to be redeemed. By grace you have been saved. See? Anyway, that might be beyond what we're focusing on here this morning, but verse 36 parallels verse 18, and the message of John the Baptist is consistent with the message of Jesus Christ. And it should be consistent with the message we give when we're giving the gospel to this lost and dying world. We're talking to condemned people. You're dead already. You're condemned already. If you fail to accept Christ, your default condition is the path that leads to destruction of the lake of fire. All right. Next week, Lord willing, rapture pending, we will move on into chapter 4, deal with this woman at the well. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.